I'd like for you to turn to two passages of Scripture. One is in Matthew chapter 18, verses 21 through 35. And the other passage is Luke 23, 32 through 34. It's eight weeks until Easter Sunday, and I um, want to begin this morning a series of sermons on the seven last words of Jesus from the cross. And I hope to come at it from a little bit different uh, perspective. Uh, next week I'm going to talk about, in light of his statement, this day you'll be with me in paradise, talk about what happens immediately after death, and uh, talk about the care of our loved ones, the, the, the aged, um, when we talk about Mother Mary, uh, the mother of Jesus. So I want to read the passage, the parallel passage in Matthew 18, and then Luke. Peter came and said to him, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me, and I forgive him, up to seven times? And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but up to seventy times seven. For this reason the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a certain king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. And when he began to settle them, there was brought to him one who owed him ten thousand and since he did not have the means to repay, his Lord commanded him to be sold, along with his wife and children, and all that he had, and repayment to be made. The slave, therefore, falling down, prostrated himself before him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will repay you everything. And the Lord of that slave felt compassion, and released him, and forgave him the debt. But that slave went out and found one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii, and he seized him and began to choke him, saying, Pay back what you owe. So his fellow slave fell down and began to entreat him with the same words, Have patience with me, and I will repay you. He was unwilling, however, but went and threw him in prison until he should pay back what was owed. So when his fellow slaves saw what had happened, they were deeply grieved and came and reported to their Lord all that had happened. Then summoning him, his Lord said, You wicked slave, you forgave, I forgave you all that debt because you entreated me. Should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave even as I had mercy on you? And his Lord, moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers until he should repay all that was owed him. So shall my heavenly Father also do to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. And now this word of forgiveness in chapter 23 of Luke. And two others also who were criminals were being led away to be put to death with him, Jesus. And when they came to the place called the skull, 
There they crucified him, the criminal, one on the right and the other on the left. But Jesus was saying, it's in the linear action, present tense, means continuously he was saying, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they cast lots, dividing up his garments among themselves. I was called to the hospital room one time to um, preside over the death of a friend. Now, I have been um, in and near death on several occasions, and as a minister, you can imagine that responsibility. But this day was unique. For the moment I walked in, this man said, I wanted you to be here because I have some final words. And he talked to me about the things that he uh, regretted in his life and how he looked forward to heaven. And then he turned, he had a son there. He turned to his son and called his son to his bed. And he told his son how proud he was of him and how much he loved him. And then he embraced his wife. And they shared a few tender moments as they talked about how they'd loved each other and cared for each other. And when those words were spoken, he turned over in the bed and died. Final words of anybody's lips are significant. These are the last words of our Lord. And these words become little windows through which the cross can best better be understood. It happened on a Friday in Jerusalem. Had you and I been there, we would have been caught up in the excitement, no doubt. Excitement born out of the fact that three men were about to pay the death penalty. One of them was a prophet from the... The other two were revolutionists. And the crowd, with a natural love of the gruesome, were outrageously anxious for the show to begin. The dialogue on that Friday morning was bitter, and most of it was directed toward the prophet from Nazareth on the middle cross, from bystanders. If you're the son of God, save yourself. From religious leaders, he saved others. He cannot save himself, and it said it with a sneer. And the soldiers said, if you're really the king of the Jews, Come down from the cross and save yourself. Peter put it in his epistle like this. They hurled insults at him. They didn't just call out to him or scream at him. They hurled insults at him, words to wound him. And they said, in essence, we have broken this man's body. Now we'll break his spirit. But they couldn't and they didn't. Did you notice what our Lord did not do? He did not hate in return, and he did not, uh, when reviled, revile again. And as Peter said it in his epistle, he entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. Put more simply, he decided to let God do the judging. And he did not seek revenge, and he didn't send out any and he didn't yell to them, 
You're going to get what you deserve. Just wait till the resurrection. But outrageously, he spoke in their defense, and he prayed, and he kept on praying, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Forgiveness. It's what J. Wallace Hamilton calls the hallmark of the watchword of Christianity. It rings like a song through the New Testament. The Father forgives. It is the impulse out of which the church was born. It is what the apostles preached with delirious joy. It is what sent the Christian across the Roman world preaching hope to those who were caught in the grip of fatalism. The Father forgives. Now I want us to look through this little window at, of this word at three things. First of all, the predicament exposed. Mankind has sinned against God. And that sin has piled up tragic consequences. I remember reading that one day Jesus was preaching. There was this crowd of people followed him to the house, and he was inside speaking to them. Such a crowd that they were literally crammed in the doorways, no way in. In the midst of his sermon, they heard a noise, and they were letting down a man totally paralyzed on a pallet, letting him down through the roof. And as he got to the feet of Jesus, he did a strange thing. He said to the, to the man, I forgive you. Thy sins are forgiven. Now that's pretty impressive. For what could a man do totally paralyzed? I mean, to break any of the commandments requires a certain amount of mobility. But the fact is that Jesus knew that of all of our needs, our greatest need is to be forgiven of our sins. Oh, I know that the that the modern thinker has tried to dismiss sin as irrelevant. And we've given it all kinds of soft names. We've put new labels on old evils. We've called it all kinds of things to such a degree that, that Killinger, uh, Menninger, Carl Menninger of Menninger years ago wrote a book entitled Whatever Became of Sin? And even though we have given it all kinds of soft names to remove our responsibility from our actions, the fact is that we have sinned against God and that sin builds up, stacks up tragic consequences. Somebody said that when the prodigal son was fretting about getting out to the far country, he calls that independence. I just want my independence. What a nice name for it. In the far country, while bright eyes were looking into his, he called that pleasure. When he lost all of his money, he called that bad luck. When he got so low that he had to feed pigs, he called himself a fool. But when he thought straight, he said, Father, I have sinned. And Jesus paints a portrait of the predicament in this story he told. Seems like a king decided it was time to get his debts paid to him, the debts paid to him that were owed him. He took his finger and he runs down the ledger and he finds a man who owes him 10,000 talents. He had defrauded him right under his nose. And so he calls in this man first to pay off his debt, 10,000 talents. 
I don't suppose that we really understand how much money that was in Jesus' day. Let me see if I can illustrate it. All of the gold in the Ark of the Covenant amounted to 30 talents. All of the taxes that Herod collected from the entire Roman Empire for one year was 800 talents annually. Probably he owed as much money as is found, was found in the richest bank in the Eastern world, the bank of the Acropolis of Athens. And when you consider that this man's, that the man's wage was equivalent to 17 cents a day, this fellow owed the national debt. Jesus gives a little twist to the story. He said that the man, the, the Lord commanded that the man and his wife and family be sold as slaves in repayment. If they had liquidated all of his possessions, it wouldn't have been one ten thousandth of what he owed. And the price of a slave in his day meant that his entire family would bring about one talent. He was hopelessly in debt. And he falls on his knees and he does what we would have done. He begins to beg for mercy and he compounds the problem with a lie. He said, I'll repay all that I owe. If the man had taken this man's wage, every day's wage for a hundred and a hundred million years, he wouldn't have been able to pay off the debt. And he didn't have 60 million minutes if he was at middle age. Do you see the predicament? The only hope for this man was the mercy of his Lord. Our sin has piled up tragic consequences, and our only hope is the mercy and grace of God. And through this window we see, secondly, the pardon interposed. What does it mean to be forgiven? It means to be pardoned. It means you have another chance. It means there's a new beginning. It means that the debt is canceled. And so John Bunyan put it in a little song, and he put that song in a little book. And when that book came to England, it was second only to the Bible. In case you've forgotten Pilgrim's Progress, let me paraphrase it. And I saw a man clothed in rags. He had a book in his hand. open sepulchre. I saw the man gave, give free leaps for joy, and I saw on his way singing. What John Bunyan was doing is describing the history of the English-speaking world. The entire Anglo-Saxon world was lifted above savagery by the light and the power of the cross and the forgiveness that is found there. At the cross, at the cross where I first saw the light, and the burden of my heart rolled away. It was there by faith I received my sight, and now I am happy all the day. Jay Wallace Hamilton told about this big football player came into the office of his pastor. He spoke in the language of the athletic field. He said, I've been benched for foul play. Does that mean that I'm going to have to sit on the sidelines of the game of life for the rest of my life? And the pastor spoke in language of the football player. He said, well, how many quarters are they left? What quarter is it? He said, it's the first quarter, three quarters are left. 
He said, you want to get back into the game of life? He said, I, w I would if the coach will let me. He said, well, let's just ask him. Said J. Wallace Hamilton, they got down before a chair as an altar. And the pastor listened to that young boy pour out his heart to God, saw him with forgiveness and joy, felt that bear hug that expressed the joy. Forgiven. A.J. Cronin was a great physician, the director of a large hospital until the pressure of his work broke his health. He became a writer. He said one night while he was a doctor, a little boy was brought in, had diphtheria. They did a tracheotomy on him, put a tube in his throat. And they called in this little Welsh girl, gangly Welsh girl, straight from the country. And she was supposed to sit up with the little boy all night to see that no membrane got in the tube and stop it up. In the middle of the night, she dozed and went to sleep. When she woke up, she found the tube that had stopped up and the child was dying. They did all kinds of emergency procedure. The child died. Cronin was called. He came in. He was outraged. He said, you'll never nurse again. I'll take away your license. You get out of here and I never want to see you again. Now, do you have something to say? And she said, oh, sir, would you give me a second chance? Would you please give me a second chance? But he was a stern doctor and she'd broken the rules and discipline had to be administered. So he put his report in an envelope and sealed it, went to bed that night, but he couldn't sleep. All he could hear were the words of that gangly nurse, give me another chance. Can't you give me a second chance? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. The next morning, it tore up the report. The bottom line is she became the leader of one of England's greatest hospitals and died as an honored nurse with a second chance. Doesn't matter what you've done. Doesn't matter the experience of your life. The good news is you have a second chance. There is pardon. There is a land of beginning again. And so the writers of the New Testament cupped their hands on their mouths and shouted, There is a land of beginning again. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's vein, and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilt and shame. We must not stop with the pardon, however. A person who stops at the pardon, there is no blanket forgiveness of sin here. The person who stops with the pardon without, the, without recognizing the ethical demand of the pardon is more immoral than the sin. For there is something that happens to the pardoned that validates the pardon. There is something that happens to the, to the sinner that validates his forgiveness. There was, you can see it in the story of Zacchaeus. There was this lift in the entire community. Everybody felt it. This man was changed by the forgiving Lord. And he was once crooked, now he's straight. He was once stingy, now he's generous. Listen to him. I'm going to give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I've wronged any man, I'll re re restore four times what I've taken. 
Think of that. Half of all he owns to missions. And restitution, 400%. There's something extremely practical about forgiveness. It transforms man. And so Jesus dealt with that woman taken in the act of adultery. And after everybody had left, he looked at her and said, I do not condemn you. I forgive you. And she must have leaped to her feet with joy. Then came the demand of that forgiveness. Go and sin no more. There is one last thing to to be seen through the window of this word. That is the process that is composed. Now there is only one reason, I think, that Jesus would tell a story like this in the context of forgiveness. Are you listening? He wants us to understand that we're not forgiven if we're not forgiving. That it is possible for Him to waste His mercy on someone who is not merciful to those who need it. Sixty-one times in the New Testament that word forgiveness is found. Twenty-two times it refers to our forgiving one. You're forgiving someone, me forgiving someone. Well, what he wants us to understand is that once you have experienced the mercy of the Lord, you're under divine imperative to forgive. As Martin Luther put it, those of us who have experienced Christ must go out and be Christ. Now, Simon Peter wanted to make it legal and statistical. And so he said, how often am I to forgive? Seven times? He was trying to impress the Lord. He he knew he must get a little more generous than the limitation of the law, which was three times. How How often am I to forgive? Seven times. And Jesus said, in essence, Peter, you don't understand. Not seven times. Not 490 times, seven times, 70. What Jesus was saying is, Peter, forgiveness is not an act. Forgiveness is an attitude. Forgiveness is not a spurt. Forgiveness is a spirit. For you see, the real issue this morning is not how do I get even with my enemy. The real issue is, how do I get rid of my enemy? Or how do I get rid of the malice that creates them? And so they were having a gala celebration at the White House during the height height of the Civil War. And a lady heard President Lincoln say something kind about the South. She was enraged. She said, I'm ashamed, Mr. President, that you would have any kind word to say about the Southern. We need to destroy them. And Lincoln said, do I not destroy my enemies when I forgive them? And in the movie, O Pioneer, this woman, the heroine, is kneeling by before the fresh grave of her brother who'd just been killed. The gunslinger had been caught. He was down in jail. 
she turns away from that fresh grave, gets in this little carriage, and the caretaker takes her back to town. On the way to town, she says, Blame keeps the wounds open. Only forgiveness heals. How do you forgive somebody who has, who has done this? I'm not sure that I have the answer to that. I'm not sure that I know the answer, all of the answers to that. I have a partial answer. It begins at the cross. For what our Lord wants us to understand is this. Not only does our forgiveness begin at the cross, but our ability to forgive others begins with an understanding of the extent of our own forgiveness. How can I not forgive when I have been forgiven 10,000 talents worth? I heard this story and I'm through. I don't even know who told it. It's a contemporary story. A boy, boy was 12 years old. His, he saw a man murder his father and murder and rape his mother. The man was caught, convicted, and put in prison for life. This 12-year-old boy, in the trauma of that, became um, rebellious, withdrawn. He wouldn't cooperate. He was in and out of every psychiatrist's office, psychologist, counseling. He had all the whole nine yards. Withdrawn, indolent, rebellious. When he was a senior in high school, one of his friends invited him to go to, here, to a Young Life meeting. That's a youth, kind of a youth rally type thing. And somehow in that youth meeting, he was touched. He found himself going down the aisle with tears pouring out of his eyes like a dam broken. He experienced, he experienced salvation. He finished high school. He went to college. He prepared for law school. Then came the most frightening day of his life. One day he was doing his quiet time, and the most frightening thought he'd ever thought came. I've got to go and see the man, visit the man who killed my parents. He went to the prison and went through all of the, the paperwork, all of the red tape, and finally got in. Their meeting was strained and tense and cold, but he went back. On the second meeting, he looked this murderer in his eye, right in the eye and said, If God can forgive me, for hating you, he can forgive you for what you've done. The murderer was shocked. Nothing happened that day, but on the fourth meeting, while they were just visiting in the cell, the murderer said, Bill, I can't get away from what you said the other day. Can you tell me how I can be forgiven? And he shared with him Christ, and he was saved. 
the long and short of this story is that that boy is now a practicing attorney in Modesto, California. And this murderer was recently released from prison on parole. Having served his sentence, he got out. And the lawyer whose parents had been murdered by this man found this man a job and is his sponsor. Forgive me. It comes from the cross, from the lips of a man. It rings like a song through the New Testament. Out of the impulse of the reality of the forgiveness of God, this church was born. It was what men have preached with a delirious joy, what I preach with delirious joy. And I've shared with you, when I came back to God when I was a senior in high school, and God called me to preach, I remember thinking, I got under the burden of that. How could I ever be a preacher for what I've done? I hadn't done a lot of things, but I was crushed by what I'd failed to do and done. And I went to church on Sunday morning, I can remember, and I know that God gave that preacher this illustration. He said, let the sun represent God. Let your shadow represent your sin when you turn to the Father. Your sins behind you. I can remember the joy of that feeling. Forgiven, cleansed, restored. The Lord was by me now, and I'd never be the same again. There's some of you this morning whose greatest need is to bow your knee before a father against whom you have sinned and receive his forgiveness. And the greatest need some of us possess is the need to forgive. And it begins here. Would you pray with me? We thank you that these words are as fresh today as when you spoke them. And you keep on saying, Father, forgive him. And I pray, Lord, for the grace and the strength to forgive. I pray this in Jesus' name. Now, there are three invitations. Look here, will you please? If you have never come to receive our Lord Jesus in that right relationship through Him, I invite you to come this morning just to say to our Lord, Jesus, I want you to be my Savior. I repent of my sin. I confess that I have sinned against you. I want you to forgive me and come into my life and change me. An invitation for you to come this morning to place your life in, in the fellowship of the church.
We are the company of the doomed and the damned, redeemed. Come and help us. Come and help us spread the gospel. Maybe you need to come this morning because you're dealing with sin in your own life, fresh and unconfessed. You need a fresh start with God. While we stand to sing, we invite you to come.